One of the things that is difficult about being a teacher, especially a teacher of God's Word, is the potential to be misunderstood. It is very easy for people to mishear what you say, or misunderstand what you say, or even take what you say farther than it should be taken. For example, when the Apostle Paul taught the Romans that God's grace has superabounded over sin, he knew there was a potential for some people to draw the wrong conclusion. He knew there would be some who would make the suggestion, well, if God's grace has superabounded over sin, maybe we should just continue in sin so that grace would abound even more. In response to that suggestion, Paul gave the strongest negative possible in the Greek language, may it never be. Don't ever let that thought enter your mind. Paul knew how easy it is for people to hear what we say and then draw the wrong conclusions or push the issue to an unbiblical position. But Paul wasn't the only, apostle, uh, the only apostle to be concerned about people mishearing him or misunderstanding him or taking his teaching the wrong way. The apostle John also had the same concern. That becomes clear in our text this morning in 1 John chapter 2. Let's turn there together over near the end of the New Testament to the little letter titled 1 John. And please follow along as I begin reading in chapter 1, verse 5, although we've already covered these verses from chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children... These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The reason why I began reading back in chapter 1, even though our text is the opening verses of chapter 2, is because it is important for us to see the connection in our minds. Remember, when John wrote this letter, there were no chapter divisions and there were no verse divisions. So these verses flow together in a continuous thought. In verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1, John addressed right and wrong perspectives on sin. He assures us of God's forgiveness in chapter 1, verse 9, by saying, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is our confidence. However, John knew the deceitfulness of the human heart. 
And he knew that some people might take that promise and presume upon it. Surely you know what I'm talking about. In other words, Christians who know 1 John 1.9 might embrace the wrong attitude and say, well, it's no big deal if I sin because all I have to do is 1 John 1.9 it. What's the big deal? I think I'll go ahead and sin and then I'll just confess it and God will forgive me and we'll move on. That would be an atrocious attitude to take in light of that glorious promise. So John is quick to add the first part of chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, My little children, and it's almost as if he's saying, Don't misunderstand me. Don't take this the wrong way. Don't go the wrong direction with what I just said in verse 9. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Since it is our natural tendency to minimize the seriousness of sin, John wanted to make sure that we understand that his words should not be taken as an excuse for sin. John is not writing to encourage encourage us to minimize the seriousness of sin. On the contrary, he states here in verse 1, he is writing to strongly discourage sin. The fact that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us should by no means lead us to take sin lightly or see it as something that is trivial. Sin is always a serious issue. It is so serious that the only way we could know forgiveness and eternal life was for the sinless Son of God to experience the righteous wrath of God in full measure in our place. So there are serious ramifications to sin. In addition, even though the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that doesn't automatically mean that there are no consequences to our sins. For example, if you steal, you may end up in jail. If you cheat, you may not graduate, or you may be disqualified from whatever it is that you're involved in when you cheat. If you drink from the cup of self-pity, you may be seen as someone to avoid. If you are immoral, you may end up with an STD. If you lack self-control with your tongue, you may permanently damage a relationship. If you engage in pornography, you may lose your marriage or lose the opportunity to get married. If you lie, you may forfeit your reputation of ever being trustworthy. If you embrace anger, you may end up a bitter, disliked person. If you gossip, you may deeply hurt others, and you may become a person who is shunned by others, avoided. If you blow up at people, you may lose your job or the potential for a good job. If you feed and nurture your self-love, you may end up having few to no friends. If you commit a crime, the consequences of that may follow you for years or for the rest of your life. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but it illustrates the point that sin is a serious thing. Yes, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us, but we should never presume on that, and we should never fail to remember the horrific price that that was paid for that forgiveness. In addition, we should never lose sight of the fact that forgiveness doesn't guarantee that there will be no consequences. Furthermore, sin always results 
in a rupture of our relationship, our fellowship with our loving Heavenly Father. That is why John adds the next phrase in verse 1. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Please notice how John begins this sentence. This is so important. He says, if anyone sins, not when we sin. What's the difference? John doesn't deny that we may sin. He just doesn't want to imply that it's, it's a given that will happen or has to happen. Beloved, the difference between those two perspectives is immense. Please hear this. If you just accept the notion that you are going to sin, you surely will, and you will do so more often. For example, if someone who used to be a drunkard has the attitude, I'm sure I will fall again at some point, he will fall again at some point. If someone who used to be an adulterer has the attitude, I'm sure I will fall again at some point, he will fall again at some point. Whatever the sin happens to be, if we just assume we are going to do it again, we will do it again. That's a subtle way to accept and maybe even condone sinful defeat. Beloved, please hear me. You and I do not have to say yes to sin. We do not. We may choose to give in to sin. But that's not an inevitability that we should nonchalantly accept in life. Oh, well, I'm sure I'll, I'll sin a bunch more before it's all over. No. John doesn't want to reinforce that wrong perspective, which, why he, which is why he does not say, And when we sin, sin is a serious breach in our walk with God, and often in our human relationships. Because it is, we might be inclined to think that it ends our relationship to the Father, and the relationship can never be restored. After all, if sin is so serious that it meant that God's righteous wrath had to be poured out on His own beloved Son as a substitute, then maybe a sin on our part means that the Father has no choice but to end the relationship forever. That kind of reasoning isn't totally off, but it fails to take into account the fact that the substitutionary work of Jesus in our place provides the basis for us to be restored in fellowship to the Father. John says here in verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a defense attorney who intercedes for us, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now be very careful how you take this statement by John. It would be extremely wrong if you have the idea that God the Father doesn't want us to be restored to him when we sin, but Jesus talks him into it. That's not the idea at all. Jesus is not our advocate or defense attorney to convince the Father of something that the Father doesn't want to do. That's not the idea. Jesus is our advocate because when we sin, Satan takes advantage of the opportunity 
to accuse us to the Father in an attempt to get the Father to disown us. That's what Jesus counters as our advocate. Turn over with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 12. (coughs) Revelation, chapter 12. This passage describes some events that are going to take place in the future. But I want us to notice an interesting comment about the work of our enemy, Satan, in the present. Notice Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. John says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, that's a reference to Satan, the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The last part of this verse can be very discouraging if you think about it too long. It says Satan accuses us before our God day and night. Anything we say Anything we do, any little mistake, any little slip, any and every sin he uses to accuse us before God. I'm sure he has plenty of information on me to throw around before the Lord. Do you see what he just said? Did you hear what he just said? Did you see that attitude? He shouldn't be forgiven. You shouldn't claim him as one of your children, God. He shouldn't be allowed to go to heaven. Those are the kinds of accusations Satan brings against us to God day and night. Day and night. He wants God to condemn us. He wants God to disown us. He wants Christ's work of redemption to be undone or overthrown or overturned. He wants salvation to be lost. So he accuses us before our God day and night. He is to use the words or the the terminology of 1 John 2, he is the prosecuting attorney against us. But we know from 1 John 2, 1, that we have a defense attorney, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is our defense attorney against Satan. That's the picture. And if you will be aware of this sort of picture or terminology, you will find often in the New Testament that the writers of the New Testament use this type of courtroom scene to describe our relationship to God and what goes on. For example, Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Once God has rendered His verdict, that verse is saying, Who in this universe is going to overturn God's verdict of justified? God is the highest court in the universe, so no one can overturn his verdict. He is the supreme court. Once once God has declared us justified by faith, forgiven, pardoned, acquitted, righteous, that verdict stands for eternity. And there's no such thing as spiritual double indemnity. If the one before whom we are guilty has pronounced us not guilty, what is there to fear from any accusation? So Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. What a great assurance of security. 
God has rendered his unchanging verdict. As Arthur Pink put it, it is utterly and absolutely impossible that the sentence of the divine judge should ever be revoked. Sooner shall the lightnings of omnipotence shiver the rock of ages than those sheltering in him again be brought under condemnation. End quote. The divine judge has made a verdict that will stand forever. Satan tries to bring a charge against us because he is the accuser of the brethren. But all of Satan's accusations are thrown out of court because God has pronounced his verdict justified. The very next verse in Romans 8, Romans 8, 34 says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Christ died for us, he was raised for us, and he is now ascended and interceding for us. His death paid our penalty, his resurrection was God's way of saying the sacrifice was sufficient, and now Christ is interceding for us. Furthermore, Christ is at the right hand of the Father as a reward for his finished work. Now catch this concept. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father as a reward for his finished work. God has already rewarded His Son for saving us. So there is no way salvation can fail. The Lord's intercession makes it certain. Some people object to the security of the believer by saying, you know, if we fail Christ too much, He might take away our salvation. But how can Christ be interceding for us and intercede for our failures and condemn us at the same time? That doesn't make sense. Jesus isn't schizophrenic. Romans 8.34 says, Who is going to condemn us when Christ is interceding for us? In other words, the only one who really could condemn us would be Jesus, and yet He doesn't condemn us. He intercedes for us. Can someone overturn Christ's intercessory work? No. Is Christ going to turn around and condemn us? No, because he's the very one who is interceding for us. Christ's intercessory work assures us of the security of salvation. Hebrews 7.25 says of the Lord Jesus, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what John is talking about in 1 John 2. We have an advocate. He is able, Hebrews 7 says, to save to the uttermost. The word uttermost means completely and eternally. The reason Jesus can save completely and eternally is because he lives to make intercession for us as our advocate. Sometimes people object to this kind of teaching by saying something like this. They will say, you know... If I believed that, I would just sin all I want to. To which I reply, I do sin all I want to. I sin more than I want to. I don't want to. As new creations in Christ, we don't want to sin. Not if we're truly saved, truly a child of God, truly redeemed. We don't want to sin. But when we do sin... Jesus doesn't take away our salvation. He intercedes for us in the face of all the accusations Satan brings up to our God. He is our advocate, John says in 1 John 2.1. And that's what John wants us to understand. Now back to our text there in 1 John chapter 2. 
We talk a lot in Christianity about the finished work of Christ, as well we should. The Lord Jesus finished his work of bearing the righteous wrath of God for our sins. And when he did, he said, paid in full, or it is finished. That's why we use the phrase, the finished work of Christ. What we are saying is that nothing can be added to what he has done, and nothing is lacking from what he has done. Salvation is not Christ plus. It isn't Christ plus my good works, or Christ plus my religion, or Christ plus my morality, or Christ plus my baptism, or Christ plus my church membership, or Christ plus anything. Jesus paid it all. And he transfers his perfect righteousness to our legal record or our legal bank account the very moment we place faith in him. That is the New Testament doctrine of justification. And at the heart of it is the finished work of Christ. However, as important as the finished work of Christ is, let us not forget, beloved, about the unfinished work of Christ. The unfinished work of Christ is His ongoing intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 4.15 says, We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is our advocate, our defense attorney, our great high priest, our intercessor. Now be honest with yourself. When was the last time, or how often, Do you really think about the fact that Jesus is praying for you? Now, I know you think about the fact that Jesus died for you. That is something we celebrate as Christians. Jesus died for my sin on the cross. We should celebrate that. We should never forget that. In fact, the Lord has given us the Lord's table to remember it regularly. So we remember he died for us. How often do you think about the fact that he prays for you? That is his ongoing, unfinished, intercessory work. And the basis of his intercessory work is his finished work. And then John adds verse 2. He says of the Lord Jesus Christ, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. As you may or may not know, this is one of the key verses in the New Testament that is often the focus of the theological debate regarding limited and unlimited atonement. Now, there is a place for that kind of debate in the arena of wrestling with theology, but I'm not going to immerse us in that debate now because then we would miss the point the Holy Spirit intended when John wrote these words. The point that John is making is that we can have confidence in our relationship with our loving Heavenly Father because the Lord Jesus has dealt with our sin problem. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. What does the word propitiation mean? First, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. If you are familiar with Greek mythology or pagan religion, and most of us have had a class at some point or another in junior high, high school, or college in Greek mythology or pagan religion, then you know that propitiation in those contexts 
is the averting of the anger of a mean, whimsical God by offering some kind of sacrifice. That is not biblical propitiation. Dr. John Walvoord says this, quote, The two facts that place propitiation in the Bible above the pagan concepts in extra-biblical literature are, first of all, that it is not the question of satisfying a vengeful God, but satisfying a God who is just, righteous, and holy in all of his dealing. Second, such a God, while on the one hand demanding complete satisfaction of his righteousness, is the same God who, because of his love for lost mankind, sent his Son to be that propitiation. End quote. In other words, propitiation is the satisfaction of anger, but it is the wrath of a just, righteous, holy God who is not whimsical or mean, but rather is so loving that he himself provided the propitiation. A second thing that propitiation doesn't mean is expiation. Expiation means only half of what propitiation means. Expiation has sin as its focus, and it means the covering or putting away or rubbing out of sin. Propitiation means that, but it means more. Propitiation also means satisfying the righteous wrath of God. Let me show you a couple other passages in the New Testament in which this word, this key word appears. Back up to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3. After the four Gospels, we have the book of Acts, then the book of Romans, chapter 3. Verse 24, Romans 3, 24 says, describing our salvation, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 25 whom God, referring to Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now there, are, there is a lot in those two verses, but mostly what I want us to notice now is that propitiation is the work of God Himself. Paul says, whom God set forth. Packer says this, and I quote, In paganism, man propitiates his gods, and religion becomes a form of commercialism and indeed bribery. In Christianity, however, God propitiates his wrath by his own action. He set forth Jesus Christ, says Paul, to be a propitiation. He sent his son, says John, to be the propitiation for our sins. It was not man to whom God was hostile who took the initiative to make God friendly, nor was it Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, who took the initiative to turn His Father's wrath against us into love. The idea that the kind Son... Now listen to this part of the quote, because a lot of Christians wrongly think this way. The idea that the kind Son changed the mind of His unkind Father... By offering himself in, a place of sinful, in place of sinful man is no part of the gospel message. It is a sub-Christian, indeed an anti-Christian idea. For it denies the unity of will in the Father and the Son, and so in reality falls back into polytheism, asking us to believe in two different gods. But the Bible rules this out absolutely by insisting that it was God himself 
who took the initiative in quenching his own wrath against those whom, despite their ill desert, he loved. End quote. Propitiation is not something we did. It's not something the Son did to change the Father's mind. Propitiation is the work of God the Father himself. On our way back to 1 John, stop off at the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, because this word occurs in the the book of Hebrews as well. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. It says, Therefore, this is referring to the Lord Jesus, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren. That is saying, Jesus had to become a man. He had to become fully and truly human if he was going to redeem us. He had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Here's the phrase, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There it is again. Jesus is our propitiation. There is absolutely no way we could do do anything ourselves to avert the righteous wrath of God toward us. Jesus did it for us by being our propitiation. John uses this very word in our text in 1 John 2, and then he uses it again in chapter 4. As we go back to 1 John, just bypass our text in chapter 2 for just a moment and go to chapter 4. Notice how John uses the word here in this chapter. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. This is how God showed his love. This is how we see the love of God, John is saying. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And then John can't stop there. This is too magnanimous. This is too important. And so he he almost repeats himself. He says, in this is love. You want to know what love is? There's a lot of talk about love. There are a lot of songs about love. You want to know what love is? This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There are many people, even some Christians, who think that this biblical doctrine of propitiation is pagan, that it's it's, uh, something that is coarse or crude. Beloved, look at this verse. Rather than propitiation being a coarse concept or a crude doctrine, it actually, according to this verse, defines and demonstrates the amazing love of God for us. God's love for us is so immense so magnanimous that he was willing to send his pure, only begotten son to be our propitiation. There is no higher demonstration of the love of God than that which is depicted in Christ's death in our place as a propitiation of the wrath of God. In fact, Packer calls it the heart of the gospel. He's right. Propitiation is the heart of the gospel. That is why John brings up the concept in our text in chapter 2. So let's back up a couple chapters there to our text. So John says here in verse 2, referring to Jesus Christ, and he himself is the propitiation 
for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The heart of the gospel, beloved, is the fact that the Father and the Son were willing for us to escape holy wrath because of Jesus as our substitute. That is the basis for our confidence that even when we sin, we will not be disowned by the Father. We will not be abandoned by the Father. We will not be kicked out by the Father. And this is not only true of Jewish believers in Jesus, this is also true of Gentile believers. It's not only for our sins, says John, but also for the whole world. John was Jewish, and he wanted to make sure that we understand that this glorious provision was not only for the Jewish people, it is for the whole world. It's for you and for me, beloved. We are not second-class Christians simply because we're not Jewish. In addition, there is a sense in which Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world, and not only for believers, in that the death of Jesus has temporarily stayed or postponed the righteous judgment of God against sinful humanity. Now think about this. Our world of rebellious mankind deserves the righteous wrath of God immediately. This very moment. But there's a sense in which the sacrifice of Jesus has temporarily delayed that judgment. Why? Well, this is exactly what the Apostle Peter describes in 2 Peter 3. Listen, as I, we won't turn to it, but as I just re- review that chapter. In the opening verses of that chapter, Peter talks about the coming judgment that God has promised to unleash on this world. And then he answers the question of why it, why it hasn't happened already. Why? If we deserve judgment, if this world deserves judgment, why has God not unleashed his judgment? 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's why God hasn't unleashed his judgment. He wants everyone to come to repentance. So John doesn't hesitate to say here in verse 2 that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. We don't have to sort out the inscrutable mysteries of the atonement to offer men and women the gift of salvation. The Bible is filled with whosoever's. Romans 10, 13. Whoever, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Revelation 22, 17. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John three sixteen says, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As W.E. Vine put it, quote, No one is by divine predetermination excluded from the scope of God's mercy, end quote. Again, I say, we don't have to sort out the inscrutable mysteries of the atonement to offer men and women the gift of salvation. John does not hesitate to say here in verse 2 that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. John is not obviously not teaching universalism. 
which is the view that everyone is automatically saved because of the death of Jesus on the cross. In fact, look at the very next two verses. Notice what John says. Verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. These are the first of many verses in this letter that explicitly teach that some people are the children of God and some are not. John was no universalist. As we will see in the messages ahead, he used some of the strongest language in the New Testament to state that there are many people who do not belong to God, many people who are not in the family of God. In fact, he refers to them in some texts as children of the devil. So there's no way verse 2 can rightly be used to teach or support universalism. Besides, that, is, that isn't even John's point in this context. His goal is for us to have a proper understanding of sin and how to deal with it. He says in chapter 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Rather than denying our sin, we should confess our sin. And 1 John 1, 9 says, The Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that doesn't mean we should take sin lightly. It is an extremely serious issue. So John says in verse 1 of chapter 2 that he writes so that we may not sin. We shouldn't sin, beloved. We shouldn't mess with sin or play with sin or dabble in sin or trivialize sin or engage in sin or minimize sin. We should never, ever, ever treat it lightly or see it as no big deal. It's huge. It is a really, really, really big deal. But, but, sin is a really, really, really big deal. And it is an extremely serious issue. And it often has major consequences. But, we shouldn't assume that it results in the Father having to permanently sever His relationship with us. No, no. Because we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one and 32, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Beloved, please hear me when I say this. Just as surely as Jesus prayed for Peter, he prays for you, and He prays for me. He is our defense attorney against Satan, the accuser of the brethren. That's what John wants us to understand, and that's what John wants us to grab hold of for our lives. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow together in closing this morning, I need to emphasize one final thing, and that is Jesus is not your defense attorney if you're not a child of God. If you're not a Christian, that is, if you have never 
receive Jesus Christ personally as your own Lord and Savior, if you've never received his salvation, if you've never received what he purchased on the cross, he's not your defense attorney. He's not your advocate. This is not true indiscriminately. He is our advocate, those of us who belong to him, those of us who belong to God through faith in him. So if you're here this morning, you're not a child of God, you're not a Christian. You really can't claim this promise. Instead, you need to listen to the whosoever wills of the Bible. Whoever thirsts, let him come and drink freely. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There are many, many whosoever's in the Bible, and they apply to you. So if you're here today, you're not a Christian. You're not a child of God. You've never personally received Jesus Christ. Remember that God's word says, whosoever will, let him come. Come to the Lord Jesus today, right now, this very moment, in the quietness of your own heart. Come to the Lord Jesus by faith. Father, thank you for the glorious, glorious promise we have considered this morning. That we have an advocate with you, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He intercedes for us, and the basis of his intercession is the fact that he is the propitiation for our sins. He has dealt with our sin problem, our sin issue, and we never have to fear that you will disown us, that you will kick us out of your family, that you will be done with us. No, you love us. You prove that love by sending your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. May that truth grip our hearts in a fresh and new way this day as we consider what your word has to say on this extremely important topic. May your spirit give us understanding. And in closing, may your spirit draw to saving faith anyone who is present here with us this morning who does not know your son personally and intimately. May this be the day he or she comes to faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.